So if I can be honest with you for a moment, I've been struggling with my mental health. Everyone struggles with their mental health. Everyone struggles mental with their health. I want to see if gaming can change that. If you are experiencing ADHD, depression, racing thoughts that just won't shut up every single moment of the day, I'm hoping this episode might help. I'm Haz, and today we're cozying down for a nice little conversation with Hazel, who you may know from TikTok, steam training her way through the algorithm to anyone who needs a little bit of a mental boost. And as I was typing your email, I was like, oh, we're both called Haz, that's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, me too. Welcome to the show. So how did you like get started? So obviously you're making a game, you've got some absolutely amazing mental health content going out on TikTok. Where does this synergy come from? My background's in sport. Okay. I was a kickboxer and boxer competing for 10 years on the international circuit. During that time, I mm-hmm. just burnt out absolutely horribly, okay. um, hit rock bottom, both physically and emotionally. And at that point, I was so completely unaware of anything. I was totally disconnected from my body. I didn't Mm. understand what my emotions were. I was having panic attacks and I just thought I was ill. And as a result of that, I just pushed myself further and further into this burnout without actually ever really stopping to ask what was really going on. Eventually I was forced to go to therapy after trying so many different types of therapy and so many medical routes to try and mm-hmm. find the quick fix for my yeah, body yeah. and get back in the ring. What's the pill that's going to fix yeah. it? That kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Who's the magic? Who's the person with the magic wand? And I would get genuinely angry with people if they if they couldn't do it, you know? <laughs> so, 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 so messed up. And eventually I had to concede that, you know, obviously this was going to do take some work and I needed to look at mm-hmm. my mental and emotional state found a therapist that really worked for me and it was very creative style of therapy, very creative therapist. And it totally changed my life. First of all, it got me back into the ring. It got me back to health. It didn't get me back to 100% fitness. I mean, I really had battered my body. I was also older, but it got me back to enough health to compete again. You know, I won some good titles that I was proud of, that I was able to be proud of for the first time. But eventually it actually just meant that I didn't need to to box anymore. I kind of realised I didn't want to be hitting the people in the face anymore. Right. Um, I didn't feel I had something to prove in the same way that I had done when I'd gone into fighting. Sorry to interrupt, had you seen that as in like, was that almost a coping mechanism in itself? The fighting, definitely. And the therapy helped me to see that. It helped me to recognise both why I put so much stress on winning and why it was so painful for me to lose, which was what of course caused the burnout because I was just constantly anxious about it. And it helped me to understand, you know, beyond that, where those values and preferences had come from and whether they really meant anything anymore, which was... The kicker. They didn't, you know. Yeah. I didn't need to be this dominant, frightfully muscly person who could get in the ring and do damage to someone. And you know, mm-hmm. it sounds ridiculous to put it that way, but I know that there was a part of me that thought that if I could become that hero figure, I would be able to fight my way out of fear yeah. and anxiety and all that stuff. And of course I just fought myself into more and more and more of it. Mm-hmm. So the therapy flipped that. Because it changed my life so much, I trained to be a therapist. I practiced for 10 years. My therapy style was also very focused on metaphor and imagery and story. And for the sport, I was I was I went to art school, you know, so I'm very much interested in that side of things and allowed okay. me to come full circle. First I wrote a book on it. And then because okay. of writing the book, Ellie, my co-founder, messaged me and said she'd read the book and she wanted to see if I was interested in making a a video game for mental health when I'm, and I was very much interested. You've had like this crazy route it seems then but you've obviously got the creative side already that was there like you said you went to art school. Were you carrying on doing art while you were boxing as well or had that sort of like cut off and then? No I'd done a similar thing with art as I did in boxing. I came out of art school you know with a great qualification 
mm-hmm. but had no confidence. I think I had right. one exhibition and then I didn't seek it anymore. I just decided that I wasn't good enough and went and worked in hospitality yeah. where I met a guy that I fancied and he took me to a boxing gym. And then that's, <laughs> that's how the things linked you're up. Like, oh, this is me now. Okay. okay yeah. Cool. yeah. I'll do I that instead. That. Here's yeah. the answer. <laughs> so had you been gaming already when you'd been approached to work on a game? Like, was that... I mean, I come from a gaming family. When I say game, like the, okay. the, the, our family are, my family is ma- mainly a board game family, but... You know, my sister is literally a board game fanatic. Just just her really? birthday this weekend, we went and played <laughs> Scythe Expeditions for, for the entire weekend. So games always been a big part of my life. Mm-hmm. I realised since the diagnosis of ADHD, which was relatively recent, I was one of these women who slipped through the cracks, and yeah. I was functional enough, you know, to do that. I realised that I don't even I don't have relationships that aren't based on games. You know, I speak to my mum. <laughs> we do a cryptic crossword. You know, we would never actually just phone up for a chat. I can't do that. <laughs> well, I can do a cryptic crossword with you. And that can be the basis of our relationship. <laughs> okay, so you seem like you have a very similar family structure to me then. I was brought up by a gaming dad who's still now at the age of 62, I think he is now, or 63 nearly. He still regularly plays his Xbox. He plays his Minecraft, his right. Destiny 2. It'll, I don't think it'll ever stop. My, one of my earliest memories, which I've recounted on the podcast before, is being sat on his knee while he got a new game and we sat and played through it, you know? And it was like, I hold that as a treasure in the back of my mind and I will do forever. Yeah. So that's really nice to hear that you come from a gaming family too. It's, it's part of the story actually. So I have a similar mm-hmm. memory with my dad except I was playing Rogue with him on MS-DOS. Okay. I don't know. Did you, did, I don't, how old are you? Uh, I'm 32 just. So like my first console, well I say console was the Atari ST that my dad had. So we'd play yeah. on that. So I think you would have been too young to play Rogue. I mean it was really, it was very, very basic. Yeah, um, DOS was the like the yeah, generation before yeah yeah and but we would play my dad and i would play rogue until very late at night and i would have to hide underneath the table if my mum was coming upstairs oh really and so like, with this wonderfully like <laughs> special thing that my dad was hiding me so that we could carry yeah. on playing rogue yeah. that's absolutely adorable and i absolutely love that <laughs> So nice. Yeah. So how did you go into making the game itself? Was that something you had like looked into before? Was it you jumping in head first? Because I went to video game university. So I went to uni to study creating games. So did you do that yourself or did you work with a team? Or We worked with a team, obviously. There's the the okay. two of us are co-founders, but neither mm-hmm. of us have any game writing experience. I mean, okay. we, we wanted to write, you know, it's an interactive fiction game, right? So yeah. we wanted, we thought we can test the theory by making an extremely basic chatbot version of it. And we made it with ManyChat, which is the the software that Facebook uses to allow you to create automatic replies to people who message a Facebook group and, and stuff like oh, that. I see. So okay. simple. Yeah. We're like, if we can make a story that has, mm-hmm. you know, the, so for anyone who doesn't know what it's about, Betwixt is a, is a choose your own adventure, fantasy choose your own adventure with theory and tools from psychology and therapy woven into the narrative. So as you travel through this dreamlike world, you get to um, develop self-awareness, self-compassion, and learn some emotion regulation skills along the way. The idea being that the the story and the engagement came first, and that the therapeutic benefits and the skills you learn are almost a kind of happy byproduct. Mm -hmm. That was our plan. We wanted to see if we could do that. We thought if we can make this work in many chat, then we'll know this is possible. So we made my, my my co-founder worked out how to use ManyChat and we created this thing and I tested it with a load of friends who came around my house and I fed them pizza. Um, the greatest bribe. <laughs> it was exactly all I needed. And then we sat around and talked about it. And it was fascinating because we had assumed before that that our biggest challenge, we thought people mm. will like the story bit, but we thought as soon as it starts to smack of therapy, they'll probably get turned off. Okay. And what we discovered in that test was actually that it was the other way around, that people were like, okay, fine, the story's cool. I mean, it was a totally mm-hmm. different story from the one we have now, to be honest. But but when they got to the therapy parts, 
which meant that they were typing their thoughts in. They were creating the world because they were now influencing it directly with what they were thinking and feeling. That was when they were locked in. So when we saw that yeah. happen, right? Okay, there is there's potential here. There's something um, here. Yeah. Now we just me, got to work mean, out to make it. The the gameplay itself, listeners, I have been playing through this. Feel free to play. It's an interesting experience. It almost feels like you're wandering through a lucid dream. Now I know it's it's supposed to be around like the dream world itself. That's like the interactions that you have on there. But as you're saying, then like creating your own world, it feels like you are lucid dreaming. Like you're growing and developing the world around you as you go through it which is really really nice i absolutely think that is a a brilliant idea to do from a game mechanic perspective and you've also got sounds in there Mm -hmm. you've got like immersive soundscapes which is so simple of a mechanic to put in there but it has such a massive impact people don't seem to realize how much sound impacts a game it was a huge difference we added Mm -hmm. that in we'd already started testing it without sound and it was one of the things where we're like maybe we'll do this yeah. We'll see what people ask for. And so many people ask for sound. So I got right. a, a guy called Nick Sadreas, who is, he's actually a lawyer, but he's also oh, wow. a classic, a classically trained musician and right. a friend of mine. Um, mm-hmm. And he created both the soundscapes and the music. So there's, there's, there's immersive sound throughout mm-hmm. the dreams. And then towards the end of the dream, almost always at the end, it turns into this beautiful music, this sort of ethereal music that he's created. Mm-hmm. And it just totally changed the experience. Yeah, I, I can imagine the first time hearing the sound in it and what an impact it makes. Because yeah. I remember like working on game projects at school, not school, at university, sorry. <laughs> Obviously, I'm younger in my mind than I thought I was. <laughs> yeah, um, the first time you put sound in a game, whether it's like impact sounds or if you're working on a combat game or music or anything, going from playing something in pure silence, I don't know if you've come across the term game oh. juice before it's what people who work in games call it it's player feedback essentially so when you interact with something how does it interact back with you whether it's a sound an animation something shaking on screen yeah as soon as you bring that in there the impact is unmeasurable almost like it suddenly feels way more complete of a game and i think that's why it Im- impacts the choices that you make on the game every little click that you do it sort of feels more weighty almost yeah well, that's um, really interesting to hear, actually, because we're looking at adding things like haptics and some little animations when buttons are clicked. It's okay. one of the things that we've got on a list to do. So we could, mm-hmm. you know, up the juice even further with the with that. Oh, the more juice, the better. It's like an yeah. orange. Squeeze it all out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you need anyone to test stuff, I'll by all means test it for you. Oh, great. And, like, have a play. I'd love to see how far it goes. One of the questions that I wanted to sort of, sort of touch on, and it, it's something that's played around a lot in the gaming sphere when it gets looked on negatively and how games can either negatively or positively affect mental health do you think games in general and this isn't speaking just just in your game because i know that obviously your game is to help mental health in a way do you think any other games can help anxiety mental health that kind of thing yeah i think i actually think any game could potentially help Mm -hmm. someone's mental health the stuff around gaming being bad for mental health Mm -hmm. is part myth i think yeah and also just it's it's looking at the wrong people. So if, if you take literally anything that we can spend our time doing, if yeah. people do it for the wrong reasons, it will be bad for us. So if people are gaming too much because they want to escape the world or because they don't like who they are and they want to be the character in the game, mm-hmm. then the gaming is probably not going to be that good for them. Yeah. But if people are gaming for healthier reasons and, and they are able to pick up and put the game down and they're able to understand what their real world is and, and what role the game plays in it, there's no reason why it can't be a helpful thing. It's about story in the same way that novels are. And story mm-hmm. is how we have learned from the beginning of time, of human time. Like that's how yeah, the brain the campfires, learns. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. We are wired for that. You know, we don't talk about it that often. We talk about it sort of casually that, that you know, we'll watch a film and it changes our life. We do mm-hmm. that, that. We all understand that. A game can have exactly the same impact 
And there are lots of games out there at the moment that are sort of toying with these ideas of, you know, the bigger picture. We were at the Adventure X Games Conference a couple of weeks ago, and there was oh, yeah. somebody else there who was working, working, making a game called Cabernet, which is which is a vampire role player game based around the concept of alcoholism and the blood was a metaphor for alcohol. Okay. And then there's We'll Always Have Paris, which is a game about Alzheimer's, about a a husband whose wife has Alzheimer's. And I think I haven't played the game, but it's about playing to, you have to try and sort of have a nice day with with your wife sort of thing. You know, so there are games out there that are really tackling massive topics. Yeah. And there's no reason why we can't see this as a path to improving people's mental health. It doesn't need to be demonised. No, I don't think so at all. And like, I, I think it, even just in terms of storytelling, the way games have advanced and like, obviously now we're in the era of like huge AAA games that cost hundreds and hundreds of millions to make. Some of the storytelling in games, it blows me away how in-depth they can be because you can do so much much more with the interactivity element in a story like when you're making choices like even like in your game when you're making choices of what you're going to say back to the the voice that's speaking to you and it's it's interesting to see where they're going to go next and like i know obviously we're moving into the world of vr ar that kind of thing and i'm interested to see where they'll go next with choices in that kind of thing mm. in a virtual environment like have you played any vr games i love vr i've got i've got an oculus these days i haven't got a boxing coach at the moment i, I mainly really? do my fitness in beat saber oh i'm so glad you said that beat saber is such a good game <laughs> it's such a good game yeah. i love it and i and we, my sister and i my sister lives out of london so it's a place mm-hmm. where we can hang out together and have a workout together in a very competitive way because of course my family is all about competition yeah yeah Yeah, well that's Uh, nice healthy competition yeah it's no it's perfect and we play also speaking of rogue have you ever played demio on um on vr i don't don't think i have no it is a three-dimensional you know board game Mm -hmm. it's a roguelike game so it's basically rogue it's just rogue on steroids and you can zoom in and be behind your warriors and you and your casting spells and stuff okay Really recommend it. It's brilliant. You said before we started recording that you're working a little bit more on more levels. You're working on like expanding it. Is is that anything you can talk about? Are you allowed to say anything? I can, I can actually. So in the in the base game, there are 11 dreams mm. and it is a complete story. You know, it has a beginning and an end. The most common thing that people say for how can we improve it is we want more. We want more. Right, just we more want, of it. <laughs> yeah, just more, which is great. Great problem yeah. to have. And so what I'm currently doing is writing, we'll be testing this with, with four of them rather than writing the full 10 that I've got in mind, writing mm-hmm. some, some dreams that are going to go in between the dreams that are currently in there, almost oh. doubling the amount of content of the story. We're taking people, we're calling them deep pauses. They're like dreams that take people deeper into yeah. the topics addressed because each dream has you know the story in it. And then it also looks at a certain topic or a certain area of self-awareness so one dream yeah. for example will focus on values another will focus on strengths and weaknesses that sounds boring but it's done in a more interesting way no and that doesn't sound boring at all let me say <laughs> <laughs> the mini well that's coming from a wellness background it's like oh strengths and weaknesses but no it, it's actually fun so these mini dreams or these deep pauses are are, are a way for us to give people a really de- a much deeper extra level of exploration and also a whole new part of the world i won't uh, put any spoilers in about that but you get to see different parts of the world keep the spoilers out (laughs) yeah um but we're also working with a a brilliant therapist and author at the moment called ellen clark uh she's running some workshops for us at the moment which are brilliant we're calling them circles they're for people to again for people to go deeper into the concepts they're very creative but she is also coming on board to potentially as long as we can make it work financially start writing a totally new story because what we want to happen with this eventually yeah. is for it to be a platform for lots of different stories of the type that Betwixt is. We're calling the genre mindful entertainment. So stories, mm-hmm. interactive stories with some kind of additional benefit. And they'll mainly be mental health, certainly to begin with. But what this will allow us to do is to, to write lots of, I'd like, the dream would be to have therapists with specialisations 
pairing up with different writers okay. and to have, you know, a story on generalized anxiety or a story on codependency, you know, and, and getting the, the goodness out of all these different therapists by pairing them with interactive fiction writers who can turn it into this playable experience. So you've got a dream within a dream scenario. You're going a bit inception yeah. here, aren't you? <laughs> okay. Exactly. Layering it in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Very, very cool. So when you, when you start to to bring different people in, is there anything that you're hoping that they'll like take back to reality from what they're learning in the game? Like obviously you, you can't talk about the ones that are coming up, maybe the ones that you've got at the moment. Is there anything that you're hoping people will learn? Yeah. The three things we've focused on are self-awareness, self-compassion and emotion regulation. So throughout okay. the game, you build up the blocks required um, to develop self-awareness. Self-awareness, for anyone who isn't sort of familiar with this use of the term, it doesn't mean, you know, self, we're not talking about self-consciousness. It's not just about being aware that you are a being in the world. It's not about, an NPC. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> it's about, you know, knowing what you value, what mm -hmm. you aspire to, and crucially how you come across to others, how you impact on the world. There's some brilliant research by a woman called, a psychologist called a, a Tasha Urich, who, uh, who looked at self-awareness and found that, I think this was the video you were talking about earlier on, found that um, if you measure self-awareness, not just in terms of people knowing their own stuff, but also knowing how they appear to the world, yeah. which is which is crucial, a crucial part of it, then what you find is around somewhere in the region, 95% of us believe we're self-aware, but the real percentage is closer to 10 or 15%, which means the vast majority of us are wandering around thinking, yeah, I know myself. And um, we're totally clueless. Terrifying notion, though. I will Isn't say that's it? terrifying. And it really makes you think. And, and, and the thing that when you look at that research as well, there are reams of studies showing mm. the benefits of having self-awareness. Everything from being a successful person to being a connected and friendly person to being somebody who is liked and a good parent and a good learner and all of these things. Everything you mm -hmm. possibly want can be improved with, by, seemingly by having a decent level of self-awareness, but, but none of us have it. <laughs> so we wanted to, to, to help people start to ask the questions that they wouldn't usually ask to develop self-awareness. And then that rolls into self-compassion. Right? You can't have self-compassion unless you know who you are. And you can't mm -hmm. have self-compassion unless you've faced your fears and faced your insecurities and the things you don't like about yourself, because you'll just keep blinding yourself to all of that information. So you start yeah. with self-awareness and then that moves into self-compassion, which again, reams and reams and reams of studies showing how important that is for us. Mm -hmm. And the additional things, uh, emotion regulation, it was just the ability to regulate your emotions, the ability to handle, you know, fear and anger and and. Yeah even the positive emotions, you know, how do we respond to those things? And we've got a couple of mechanics. I won't go into the details of them, but it's mm -hmm. a couple of mechanics of how to improve emotion regulation uh, really woven into the game. One of them being self-distancing, which is to see yourself from a distance, which is basically what the game's all about because you're imagining this version of you in this yeah. weird world battling with these strange metaphorical things that of course your mind just links immediately to real life problems and real life obstacles right okay like emotional regulation as like as a concept in itself i suppose is something that i just think everyone should be able to manage a little bit more i think there are some very basic things that you learn if you go to therapy or if you train as a therapist mm. right at the beginning you learn some very basic things which give you seemingly a superpower that you didn't realize you ever had yeah. um, there's lots of different ways to learn those things but we aren't taught them outside of the therapy context so we no. aren't taught them in school and we should be yeah we should be and i mean i think that's where g games like betwixt for example really give people a lot more power to learn a bit of regulation in day-to-day -day life by doing something get like for example gaming which they would usually love anyway like i've sort of come at this a, a bit of an unusual 
angle, I think, because I myself have just done first experience with therapy. Like I've never, never done that before. Had myself a little uh, mental quake and (laughs) decided to have a chat with someone about that. It went very, very well. Like, you know, I, I felt myself immediately being better over the course of the months after that. But I think now from stopping it, I've noticed myself creeping Mm. a little bit back towards it again. So I'm actually going to go back and do a, f- a few more courses, classes. I don't even know what to call it. Meetings? Sessions? 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 Sessions. Thank you. Yeah. That word was just sort of a nebulous concept above my head that just was not coming down to me there. Like this game already, I'm, I'm noticing connections to what's been said. There are, there are studies to show that if when we're in a place of curiosity, we are more plastic. You know, we learn faster. So as adults, we, we don't tend to learn that well. We have to be in quite specific neurological environments uh, need to be sort of in place for us to be in a state of neuroplasticity to learn. Mm -hmm. And one of the best ways to achieve that is curiosity. There was a study with uh, where they, where they got people, they either, they explained something that somebody had to learn either in a very literal basic way or in this kind of otherworldly magical way. And they found that just the, this magical weird explanation of it that piqued people's curiosity meant that they learned the information, the unrelated information they were then fed much better so we wanted to create a, a world that was curious and weird and fantastical okay. to put these therapy ideas into mm-hmm. so that people could better learn them. And we also wanted to create something that people could use. And this goes for people who are have never had therapy but are interested in it or people who have never had therapy and aren't interested in it. Also people who are in the course of therapy and people who have finished therapy but can use, can just pick up and put down whenever they want to, to re-engage with the ideas because just like learning a sport or a skill of any kind, mm-hmm. you can't just go to therapy for a few sessions and expect to develop new habits. That's no, not how no. it works. No, it's, it takes a long time to develop habits, doesn't it? It's like it's like anything, whether it's training a boxing gym or whether it's training your mind, you have to keep at something. And I think that's where a lot of people struggle trying to, it's almost like fitting in the self-help with the rest of their life. Like if you're so, so busy all of the time, and that's something like I definitely experienced, like when you mentioned about burnout at the start of the episode, that was definitely what I was going through. Like whether it was trying to record, I do, I have a creative job, like my main job is a video editor. So when I'm not at home recording and editing my own videos, I'm doing it for other people. By the time I was coming home, I was like, oh God, I just don't want to touch another video, you know, that kind of thing. So I, I think that was where the, the creep started to, to come from, essentially. How did you start making videos for your own TikTok? I'm curious about where TikTok fits into this. Were you on that beforehand or was that sort of with no, the game? I started, started TikTok or something like February last year or something like that. Oh, um, wow, okay. We didn't have up, up until that point a social media channel. Um, you know, okay. we've been making Betwixt for almost four years. You know, we, at the first we were right, juggling okay. our jobs and it was all very much, you know, part-time. We were lucky enough to uh, to come across enough grant money to, to pay ourselves about a year and a bit ago so we could give up our day jobs. You know, we've done most of that without any social channels, apart from my personal ones. And uh, we just picked TikTok. It's obviously worked. Out of a hat. <laughs> it was. It was. And I, I, I quite enjoy doing those, actually. I mean, it's, sometimes it's a bit of a time drain because uh, I have to do all of it. You know, I'd love it if we had a video editor or, or, yeah. or anyone that could help with that, but I, we don't. Um Yes, yes. But we need somebody who's who's free. You know? Yeah, I know, don't worry. <laughs> and I'm free. So yeah, it can be a bit of a time drain, but I do enjoy doing it. And it helps me to get the, you know, it gets me to research new stuff as well, which come, which leads to new ideas for the stories. So it's, it's all good. Oh, wow. So you use it as like an extra creative medium to come up with new ideas. That's yeah, because amazing. especially okay. when somebody will make a comment on one video mm-hmm. or ask a question that I don't fully know the answer to. So I'll go and research it and I'll look at the studies that have been done on that particular thing. And I'm like, oh, wow, interesting. I didn't know that. That can be, a, you know, the new TikTok, but also yeah. that really plays into here and I can make a dream about that or whatever. So that whole thing just is one big kind of organic 
beast. Do you remember posting your first TikTok and what it felt like? <laughs> Our first TikToks didn't have my face in them. I resisted it for ages. Ah, okay. I think I remember posting the first few that did have my face in them because that mm-hmm. we realised that we weren't going to get away with just having text on the screen. Yeah, you need to see a face. It's... Yeah. I remember the first one that went big. Like, oh my God, what have I done? It was really funny because I was telling, it was a, a story that I'd actually been told by my therapist many years ago when I'd had a sort of friendship breakup. One of my friends mm-hmm. had disappeared out of my life. She sat there and she listened to me talk, talk, sort of stressing over, you know, why, why and I don't know what it is. And she was asking me a bit about yeah. the relationship and I was like, we were always a bit sort of awkward with each other. I'm not actually sure we were that good friends, but still, you okay. know, been friends since we were at school, blah, blah, blah. And she sort of leant forward and she sort of locked me with her wise owl stare. <laughs> And she said, you know, there are three colours in this world. There are green, orange and yellow. Green are the people who are your people. They are just, they click for you. They share your same values. They'll cheer you on no matter what you do. Mm-hmm. And then there's orange who are people that are sort of the opposite of that. They're just not your people. And they'll be there and that's fine. And they don't necessarily, they're not going to like you, value you or respect you. And it's all right. It's fine. She said, but then there's yellow. They're the people who you don't know really what they are. In fact, you're kind of friends with them because maybe you've been friends with them for a while or maybe they're a work colleague or maybe maybe there's some kind of benefit to having a friend like that that you think you, yeah. know, you, think you have to. She's like the only colour to get rid of is yellow. If really? the more you are comfortable with yourself, the more greens will show up. You'll be better and better with orange. But the only colour to get rid of is yellow. The people who would have you at a dinner party because they've got one seat to fill. Or the people that you walk away from afterwards and think, I don't really enjoy that day. And we tell ourselves lies about these people all the time. I have to be friends with them because... Mm-hmm. Or I should be friends with them because, and I think we could apply this to the work that we do as well. We can apply to basically anything. We constantly force ourselves to stay in things that aren't really right for us because we think we should. The effect is that it causes burnout. You know, it we spend so much energy changing our own shape to fit into a hole that we have decided we need to be in, mm-hmm. be that a job or a relationship or whatever, that we exhaust ourselves because it's in the emotionally uh, takes its toll enormously so the only color to get rid of is yellow so i made a tiktok about this and it started with something like 10 years ago one of my friends walked out of my life and i told the story and it went mad it had like a million views and before this i was getting like hundreds max yeah it suddenly suddenly i had one that was like a a million views and the comments were hilarious one woman said she said maybe maybe that person just left because you know no offense she said but you don't seem like a very likable person (laughs) i was like oh yeah none none taken (laughs) no it's all right (laughs) So yeah, that was a bit of a shock to the system. I quite felt quite nervous while that was happening, but I can these imagine. days I'm 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 a bit I'm a bit more savvy and I'm a bit more comfortable when that happens. <laughs> that's that's such a hard thing to do walking away from people that are that grade of colour. I guess that I think it's a lot of people are scared to be who they want to be or who they are. That's that's what the story is really yeah. about. Like yeah. it's about being green and to use the colour metaphor, it's about being green for yourself. And when you are mm-hmm. just true to yourself, when you do decide to speak your mind, you know, not to the point where you're saying rude things all the time to people, but yeah. to to be, you know, to not fake it, to not try and fit in, but to truly be yourself. Mm-hmm. You That doesn't mean you say to somebody, hey, I've decided you're yellow, you're out of my life. It's not mm-hmm. about ghosting people or anything. When you start being more authentic over time, the yellows will disappear and the greens will appear cool. and you'll recognise an orange more quickly because mm-hmm. you are just not prepared to put up with the crap that you would have been putting up with before and i think a lot of people do struggle in a time like now when everyone's so much more connected because of social media but also 
a lot more separated because of social media, if you know what I mean. Like I, I don't find myself as, with as much time to go out to see friends in real life as I would like to, but it's so easy to just message them on Twitter or TikTok or WhatsApp, that kind of thing. Whether it's like different amounts of group chats that you end up getting put into with like different groups of friends, but then organizing times when you can see all those people is something that a lot of people I think find very, very difficult. One of the things that's actually helped a lot of us, and I, I think this was actually during lockdown saying that, was how much gaming saved a lot of people during lockdown. Now, not the most relaxed game, I will say, but Call of Duty Warzone, <laughs> a first-person shooter, was what a lot of me and my friends congregated on. We got terrifyingly good at the game very, very quickly because there was nothing else to do except sit inside and sit in front of the TV. But the social aspect of it was so nice to be able to meet people every day and have a laugh and have proximity chat with people, that kind of thing. Some of these friends I didn't know in real life, by the way, like shout out to Effie and Paul. They invited me to a barbecue. Turned out they lived down the road. Oh, no way. <laughs> yeah, uh, they lived in the next town. They were a friend of another podcast that turned up outside of my work one time, which was very scary because they just put a picture on my public Twitter of them stood outside my workplace. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, what's happening? <laughs> yeah, ended up going to a barbecue. They're now very, very good friends. And now we play D&D &D quite often. We've gone oh, like right. full nerd, like board game. It's so much fun. Is that something you've ever tried? Have you ever done D&D? I haven't played it. I keep meaning to. Oh, you should. It's so much fun. I need to. I actually bought all of the books for my sister oh, really? for, her, for her 40th. Um, wow. And we haven't got round. We said we were going to like book a long weekend away and go away and sort of like learn it, but we haven't gotten mm -hmm. around to it. We were playing Hero Quest at the weekend though. Oh my God. Holy <laughs> shit. So my dad had the first edition of that when I was a kid and we did used to play. I've still got it in a loft somewhere. Oh my God. My sister's boyfriend mm -hmm. is the ultimate geek. Okay. He's like, he's like, I'm going to be the, I'm going to be the dungeon master. <laughs> Hamming it up and absolutely yeah. loving like all the backstory and everything. So I haven't played D&D &D yet. But have you seen those, there, there are some amazing people doing D&D &D therapy stuff. There's a lot no. of, I've heard a lot of stuff around uh, sort of counsellor slash D&D &D mm -hmm. dungeon masters, people who create D&D um, &D groups for kids with learning disabilities or autism oh, wow. or social, social difficulties. And then they get to role play. It's much like we're trying to do with Betwixt. They get to mm -hmm. role play the issues they experience in real life through the game, which gives them a safe way of learning things. So uh, somebody was telling me just the other day about an example of uh, a guy that was, was, was doing this. And one of the kids in his group had this issue where he was autistic and he was just too trusting. Mm -hmm. He would just open up to people too much. He would just expect everybody to be a friend. And it was dangerous yeah. for him. The the D and D what are they called dungeon masters? Yeah, DMs. Yeah. DMs. DMs. Yeah. What the DM did was you know create a situation where there was kind of a, a monster in an in an alleyway or something. And when the kid sort of tried to talk to the monster, the monster fought the character. And so it was a, a way for this kid to okay. recognize the dangers in in that sort of situation, but without having to actually be mugged or robbed or anything like that that could happen in real life. Wow, that's so, so cool. I've never heard anyone doing that kind of thing. I've come wow. across it a few times. There was, a, there was a Tim Ferriss episode around it, I think, once I caught, oh, caught I see. a like, few years ago. You know, it's definitely a thing that people recognize. You know, that role play is just... I mean, role plays a part of therapy anyway. There are entire yeah. sort of styles of therapy, which are basically just role playing sessions. Okay. Is, is there any that like come, come to mind that you can tell me about? To say it's an, it, everything is just a role playing session is a massive, massive <laughs> um, oversimplification and people will mm -hmm. kill me for it. But what I was thinking of is Gestalt. So Gestalt, there's something called Gestalt chair where you imagine a part of yeah. your personality or somebody from your life sitting on the chair and you, and you role play conversations with them. The, the spatial 
part of it is important. You know, you don't just have the conversation in your head. You actually have the chair sitting there and you imagine the part of your personality or the person sitting on that chair and and you start to have conversations. There's a style of therapy called internal family systems, which is amazing. It's all about Mm -hmm. parts, how we're made up. We aren't just one person or one personality. We're made up of different parts. And each part has its own set of resources and skills and thoughts and emotions and we know this, right, because we can go into different versions of ourselves depending on where we are and what's what's demanded of us in certain situations. But we also have parts that are problematic. So the part that comfort eats, the part that has anxiety, the part that you know, this is what my book's about, essentially, as well. And in therapy, people come to the sessions saying, I want to get rid of this part. We all do that before we know what's up. We say, there's a part of me that is just shouting at my partner. Or there's this part of me that feels too anxious before I go into fight and that was for me I was just part of me it's just pathetic and weak and scared and I want to get rid of that part so I can be the, the person I'm supposed to be okay which is not only impossible but also really unhealthy because the more we resist or try to fight off these parts of the self that we don't like the bigger and more frightening and more persistent they become because you can't get rid of a part of the person a bit like you know when people are you know when amputees have phantom, phantom limb pain yeah, yeah. Trying to, to deny or get rid of a part is like that. It will still retain the ability to cause you pain. What therapy is about is is reintegrating these parts, you know, changing the way we see these parts of ourselves, changing the way we see the part that feels anxious, understanding the intentions behind those behaviors. And internal family uh, in, in internal family systems, the idea is to get these parts communicating with each other. So you almost have this whole sort of psychodrama acting out with these parts of the personality, which are sometimes metaphorical, sometimes little versions of yourself. Mm-hmm. And the more you get them talking, the more you realise that there is something beyond it, below it, which is basically kind of your sense of who you really are. And it's okay. always there. Like parts pop up in different situations. There's situation specific, but who you really are at the core is always there. And what Richard Swartz talks about, Richard Swartz is the developer of IFS, And he talks about, he started to notice when people were getting beyond these layers of parts, Mm -hmm. when they would start to use one of, I think, nine words that all begin with the letter C. They're things like compassion, curiosity, creativity, connection, calm. And when people start to use those words, they've allowed themselves to sink beyond this sort of psychodrama of coping mechanisms Mm -hmm. that are battling and warring and into who they really are. And they become a much more grounded, much more comfortable, and they're able to see clearly and make their own decisions. The reason I started saying all of that was, you know, in betwixt there's a monster. Mm-hmm. And you only, at the beginning, you could just start to see this monster out of the corner of your eye every now and then. It's this fleeting shadow that moves in the distance. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, you need to get to the phase where you're going to you confront this monster. You're going to battle it, perhaps. And I'm not, again, I can't give any spoilers, but it's a way of playing out this sort of experience we usually have of knowing something isn't quite right, not really knowing what it is, and then stumbling across what it is and being able to put a name to it and fighting it with everything we can because we want to get rid of this part. And then what happens beyond that, which is the bit I can't spoil uh, Mm -hmm. because it's the rest of the story, but, you know, it's the rest of it's kind of basically the therapy journey. So, yeah, that's what it's all about. That was a huge ramble. Good luck editing it. It was amazing. (laughs) To be honest, I was about to ask you for, like, one profound message that people will feel when they finish the game. And you pretty much just answered that before I could even ask the question, which was wonderful. So I'll just add in that question and put that before what you just said. <laughs> yeah. So actually, I'll tell you the story I was going to tell you. So sure. after this whole burnout um, and you know being forced into therapy and then going into the type of therapy that got me to face my fears, reassess mm-hmm. my values, actually look at what was genuinely meaningful, important, to me in my life. What ultimately happened was I befriended my monster. 
So before therapy, I felt like there was this anxiety monster that was chasing me around. It was looming just behind me the entire time, ready to pounce. And it, and it felt like it was making me weak and pathetic. But after therapy, I, I, I had recontextualized it and I'd realized that this thing was not my enemy. It's just a part of who I am. I, I can't mm-hmm. put it into words really because it's going to sound lame compared to what it really was. You know, this was a real epiphany to understand that this was just a basically, it was all linked back to my dad and his competitiveness and mm-hmm. how I felt like I needed to be this winner for him because he loved competition and gaming and poker and everything so much yeah. that I took on this role of needing to be this winner. And my fear of failure and the anxiety that came from it was Therefore, just basically five-year-old me that was running a race and impressing my dad. You know, that's and it was just in the was. back of your head, still running that race. Yeah, because I'd not, I'd lost touch with what it really was. It turned into this horrible, shadowy monster rather mm-hmm. than me seeing it for what it really was, which was actually quite a beautiful thing. Yeah. Um, and my dad died actually in the middle of this whole therapy process. My dad died very unexpectedly of a heart attack, so that oh, uh, didn't help the burnout much. I can imagine. Um, yeah. And also, you know, made the therapy stuff, you know, even weightier because it was also about, you know, reconnecting with him. I was competing for the national title in boxing after this journey. And up until that point, I'd been, I'd just been getting better over time. Uh, this was the point when I really knew that something was different. And on that day, we were warming up, right? And all around me, fighters mm-hmm. were sitting with towels draped over their anxious faces, each one waiting for their moment, totally alone. And normally, at this stage, I would be focusing completely on my fears and what someone had told me about my opponent on this occasion. Somebody had very helpfully told me that that girl can bang, um, which which was a weird way of putting that she could hit hard. Um, <laughs> and I would be thinking about that. But instead, I was present in the warm up. I was listening to the song of the skipping rope as it whistled past my ears. I was just absorbed in this task. And as I walked out to fight, like one purposeful step after another, I felt weirdly at peace. It was like the crowd had been hushed by this crisp layer of freshly fallen snow. And the stillness in my mind was interrupted solely by this curious little voice that says, I've got this. Now, this wasn't like that sort of arrogant confidence, overconfidence that people have, like, I'm going to win. It was actually more of just a gentle understanding that if I did win, I deserved the victory. And when I got into the ring, because I wasn't afraid of losing, because I was bringing my monster into the ring with me, to cheer mm-hmm. me on and fight with me. The fight went well. You know, I got into a flow state. The I remember you know, just feeling like my hands were doing the work for me. My feet knew where to go without me having to direct them. Shots were mm-hmm. just throwing and they were landing. But the real difference between that fight and any other came at the end. Because when my hand was raised in victory, I felt this surge of just alien emotion. I always say I'm not sure whether it was pride or happiness or just a good old fashioned sense of achievement, but it was new because up until that point, whenever my hand had been raised in victory, even on the two world titles I'd won before that point, I had hung my head and averted my eyes. Because up until that stage, what I'd felt upon winning was shame. Because I had never really truly felt that I deserved the victory. I never I was always ready to write off the achievement as fluke or chance, just like another lucky day when I got away with it. But on this day, I owned the victory. And it changed everything. It was after that fight, on the drive home from that fight, that I knew I didn't need to box anymore. I had one fight after that and I quit because I just didn't need it. I didn't need it. And so my book is Mm -hmm. about how I got from the anxiety monster to that point. You know, and I, again, it's Mm -hmm. a a creative thing. I ask people to draw their monster at the beginning because I know from therapy that when you get people 
to in touch with a part of themselves that they don't like and you ask them what it looks like they'll be like a blob of slime or a cloud mm. or a puddle or just something amorphous and not nice because they want to they want to delete this thing or kill it mm. but as you take them through the therapy and as they start to learn to love themselves even the bits that cause these problems because that's what it's all about you can't yeah. change it by resisting the part but when you accept the part and all of its problems then actually the problems tend to change Mm-hmm. And when so many people take a view of this journey, they stop seeing these parts as these disgusting blobs of slime and they start personifying them or seeing them as, like I did, as this cute child version of me that was just totally besotted with her father, who was an amazing man and had then died. And, you know, my fear was suddenly a completely different thing when I thought mm-hmm. about it that way. So the book is about taking people on that journey, starting with what's the part and how do you imagine it now? And then taking them through this sort of leveling of, of awareness around it until mm-hmm. they can befriend it the way that, that sounds like an I amazing did. book. I think I'll be picking it up for myself. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> if I buy it directly from you, will you sign it for me? Absolutely. Will you put yeah. two has from has? Cause that yes. you're very happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Wow. Yeah. That, that sounds incredible. Like I, I felt a lot of connection to that then when you're saying about the moment when someone holds your hands up and you should feel accomplished and you don't. That's a very familiar thing to me, which is rang very true. That was weird. I was in a bit of a moment then when you were talking. I felt like I was in a flow state just listening to the story, to be honest. You're a very good storyteller, so I'm very glad that you're doing a narrative game. Thank you. Yeah, me too. <laughs> You've hit your stride. You really have. If anybody wants to write a book and get published, the the, mm. the most important thing they can do is get an agent. It's not necessarily yeah. an easy thing to do. You have to get an agent. Got a friend who wrote a book, got published, didn't get the agent, unwittingly signed away the TV rights, and then Channel 4 wanted oh. to make a TV program about her book. But if they'd yeah. done it, she would have got absolutely none of the royalties, so she had to say no. As a result of having an agent, you know, we had two publishers in a bidding war, which meant I got a bigger advance. So anybody wants to write a book, get mm. an agent. I've just sent off my manuscript for the first edit from my editor, who is the um, the wonderful narrative editor from Netflix's Dark. Somehow oh, wow. managed, managed to get her as my first book editor, which has kind of blown my mind a little bit. So yeah, because it's a bit of a sci-fi horror thing in that kind so of So it's vein. a novel? Yeah, it's a novel. Yeah, the first of a trilogy. These three novels sort of take place concurrently. So I've been working on the first two at the same time, sort of dipping time tying bits together which will then i then realized oh shit they resolve in a third one so now i'm adding a third one to it which i didn't think i was going to do but uh yeah i've just signed agatha on to do those as well which is really great fantasy and sci-fi these are my favorite uh, genres so i will absolutely read this series when it comes back comes out oh, thank you very much <laughs> i appreciate um, it and i'll put two has from has in yours yes please and, oh yes my God. We'll, yeah, we'll be- <laughs> agents take yeah. like a 15 percent cut or 20 it's all standard like they don't take different mm-hmm. cuts and lots of people don't take the agent because of that cut. And uh, mm-hmm. it's worth its weight in gold. You know, they'll put the lawyers onto it to have the, there was a huge battle with my publisher about whether we would do an audio book. And it went on for oh, months. Right. And then eventually they put the audio book in there, which I read, which was so hard. Oh, you did it yourself? Yeah. That's great. But you've got a great reading voice though. Like I, I think it's so important for uh, someone who's writing their own book, like maybe something that's more personal, like the book that you're right that you have written, to be in the author's own voice. I think it comes across much more impactful. If you know what yeah, I mean. it was, but I was very bad. I'm I'm still bad reading out loud. And really? you know what's really funny? This is a monster thing for me. So what we tend to do when we have like a monster moment in our life mm-hmm. is we then just avoid the situation, like the plague. And I had a horrible. So I'm 
dis- probably dyslexic, never dis- never diagnosed, but uh, you know ADHD as well. You know, I just I had a terrible reading age when I was younger. And one time in secondary school, I was asked to read out loud. I remember it was a View from the Bridge by Arthur Miller, and I oh, read. Stuck with I you then? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was reading about a patsy, but I mispronounced it and called this person a pasty. Funny, right. and obviously yeah. the class found it very funny. <laughs> mm-hmm. And laughed at me, and I've never forgotten it. And like literally, from that point forward, I was like, "Well, I'm never reading out loud again." I know, even reading Trivial Pursuit wow. questions, I would like pre-read them uh, to, make to make sure, sure. that I wasn't going to fuck it up. Yeah. Um, and so when I had to do this thing, I went in there, and I was like, right, "Let's just see how it goes." And the first hour was excru- I was so bad. It was constant really? like retake, 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 retake. And by the end of it, I'd got all right. But it was exhausting and terrifying. I should have taken some of my own advice. I mean, I, I should have looked into this at some point. Yeah knowing it was coming up, done yeah. some therapy around it, had mm-hmm. a bit of a practice, but no, I just avoided it and hoped it was going to be all right on the day. And it was so hard. I mean, that's good to know that therapists also push things to the back and just be like, I'll deal with it another time. That's that's good to know. Yeah. It's, you know, yeah. I think that does bring us to the end of the episode, yeah. doesn't it? Very, very nice. Yeah. And I'm glad we had this extra bit of a chat. So, um, God, what if it doesn't the- save? Then it's just been a wonderful moment. It's just been a fleeting moment in time of a nice conversation. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll come back again. And next time I'm in London, I'll give you a shout. Hopefully it won't be rainy and we'll go grab coffee somewhere or something you can recommend somewhere. Yeah, that would good. be good. Thank you, everyone, for watching. Fingers Thank you, Haz, for joining me. <laughs> if you are listening on any podcast player, make sure to leave a review. Let us know what you thought. Check out Hazel's books. Check out The Game Betwixt, obviously, because it's going to be very, very helpful for everything. And it's just an all-around great experience. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been an absolutely wonderful chat. If you ever want to uh, do, a, do another one, you know where I am. Please feel free to edit the hell out of me because I am a rambler. The game can be found, it's, it's a mobile game, so you can find it on the app stores, uh, Google Play and uh, iOS app stores. Search Betwixt, that's B-E-T-W-I-X-T, as in Betwixt and Between, on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. I think the hat app. Mm-hmm. Um, book, my book is called The Solution. What's this? I've got That's over it. here the description below for yeah. you on this episode. Oh, and Discord. You can find us on Discord too. And you're on Discord as well. Amazing. The Game Hub, the central, the game social media that everybody needs. Everyone was jumping on Zoom during the pandemic, and we were all just like, we're just on Discord, just having a great time, just playing yeah. Warzone. It's a much better <laughs> place to be. Um, so, yes, we'll see you next week. Thank you very much, everyone. Bye.